This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Kai. Today I want to talk about um, the issue of renal replacement therapy. In one of the earlier uh, podcasts, we talk about um, uh, renal failure and the uh, high mortality associated with that. If you recall from that podcast, we said roughly about 50% of people who develop renal failure develop uh, fatal complications of renal failure. And we just briefly introduced the idea of renal replacement therapy. 70% of people who go into renal failure will require some form of renal replacement therapy. And renal replacement therapy can be reasonably intimidating to most people uh, who don't spend a great deal of time in, in an intensive care unit or a dialysis unit. I'm not a um, nephrologist, so uh, my understanding of renal replacement therapy is only um, superficial compared to someone who does nothing but dialysis for a living. But one of the problems with renal replacement therapy is there's a lot of different machines. There's intermittent dialysis. There's continuous dialysis. There's a lot of acronyms and a lot of initials. And how do we kind of um, trudge through all that information to know what is physically going on with the patient with intermittent versus continuous dialysis or or SLED or or some of these, all these other names that we use, and which one might be better for your patient at that particular time. So through the next uh, 20 minutes or half an hour, I'd like to go through what those different uh, types of dialysis are, what are their advantages and what are their disadvantages, and how the nephrologists actually uh, go about uh, deciding which one might be best for a particular patient at a particular point in time. The ideal renal replacement therapy controls issues of, of volume, people who are volume overload, people who have acid-base abnormalities. A lot of patients who are in renal failure will have problems with metabolic acidosis. They're going to have uremia and toxin uh, that requires clearance. And we need to be able to do that without causing increased complications uh, to the patient, either from the form of hypotension or uh, for anticoagulation. As I've already said, we can really divide um, different types of renal replacement therapy into two major categories intermittent hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy. Intermittent hemodialysis is sometimes you see the initials IHD uh, for intermittent, intermittent hemodialysis and continuous renal replacement therapy, sometimes known as CRRT. And then there's this third kind of hybrid type of dialysis, which is really a combination of the two, and that's called sustained low-efficiency dialysis. And we'll go into some detail on that. And you may hear sustained low-efficiency dialysis often referred to as SLED, and that's S-L-E-D for the word sustained low-efficiency dialysis. There are some general principles that adhere for renal replacement therapy, no matter whether you're using intermittent or continuous. These are issues of diffusion, osmosis, convection, and we use these basic principles of biology and chemistry to move solutes, electrolytes, and toxins uh, either away from the patient or to the patient, depending on the patient's individual needs. And when we think about diffusion, the best example that we have pretty much from high school chemistry uh, is the idea that a uh, molecule uh, goes from an area of high concentration down a concentration gradient to an area of low concentration. If you imagine a beaker of water or a pitcher of water, uh, that's obviously clear and transparent, and you take a drop of uh, methylene blue and drop it in the water. Over a period of several minutes, you'll see that very concentrated drop uh, go from that entry point of the drop to fill the entire pitcher going from the high concentration to low concentration to the point where you're eventually at equilibrium. And that's just simple diffusion. There's a term something called ultrafiltration. And ultrafiltration is the process by which water is transported across a semi-permeable membrane. Now there's a couple of ways to be thinking about this. That if you imagine a child in the sandbox and they have their little screen that the kids put the sand in and kind of shake and pull the rocks out. That can be looked at much like ultrafiltration in that you have a porous membrane. In this case it's the sand 
sand screen, and the, wa the sand in this case is being filtrated through that sand or through that screen. Taking it more to a fluid situation, if you take an IV bag and you poke it with this, you know a couple hundred times with a needle, and as you squeeze the bag, the water is going to go through that um, uh, uh, semi-permeable membrane. Now, the more holes we make the more rapidly the water is going to move through the uh, walls of the IV bag. If we make the holes larger, we're going to see the water move through the holes of the IV bag more quickly. If we take the bag and squeeze it or apply more pressure to it, we're going to see the water move through the bag uh, more quickly. And all these principles of either number of pores, size of the pores, or the pressure on the other side of the membrane will help with that ultrafiltration of the movement of water through that uh, semi-permeable membrane. Now that leaves us the idea of convection. Now what is convection? Convection occurs when the transmembrane pressure gradient drives water across the semi-permeable membrane as an ultrafiltration, but as that water is coming across that semi-permeable membrane, it's dragging water as well as small um, molecular weight molecules. This is like things like uh, uh, blood urea, nitrogen, creatinine, potassium, and some larger molecular weight uh, um, elements like uh, inulin, tumor necrosis factor, B12. A way to look at this from an example standpoint is a tumbleweed. If you have a tumbleweed and there's no wind, the tumbleweed is not going to move anywhere. But as soon as the wind comes, you're going to see that tumbleweed kind of moving along in the wind. Well, that tumbleweed is really moving by the process of convection. It's not going to move on its own, but with the force of that transport of that that, that wind, that tumbleweed is now moving. If you change, instead of a tumbleweed, and you change the tumbleweed to a molecule of creatinine, and that molecule of creatinine is sitting alongside of the membrane, and it's getting caught up in this movement of water across the membrane, it's being moved by convection. So using these three principles of renal replacement therapy, ultrafiltration, which is the movement of water, um, diffusion, and convection, we can really adjust people's volume status and the amount of solutes and molecules that are inside uh, the patient to, to manipulate to get off things like blood urea and nitrogen to help ultrafiltrate some uh, water in patients who are in uh, volume overload from the renal failure. Now, we can use ultrafiltration to improve convection or remove, can improve the convective clearance of solutes. And this is known as hemofiltration. So using ultrafiltration to assist in the convective movement of solutes is hemofiltration. This is not to be confused with ultrafiltration, which is the actual movement of the water. Now let's look at the classification of different types of renal replacement therapies. We said really we could break them into two types, intermittent and continuous. There are two types of intermittent dialysis, and that's the intermittent hemodialysis, and that's the classic hemodialysis we think of when the nurses from the dialysis unit bring the refrigerator-sized machine attached to the patient for a couple of hours, and they go away and come back in a day, a day and a half. Um, that is intermittent dialysis. There's also something called SLED, and as we said earlier, SLED is sustained low-efficiency dialysis, and then there's also EDD, or ED, and that's extended daily dialysis, and that's, as we'll talk later, that's taking the same dialysis machine, and rather than running it for, say, you know, from four to six hours, we're running it, say, from six to ten hours. We're running the same machine much more slowly. There are advantages to that, and there are some disadvantages. And then we get into the realm of continuous dialysis. Now, the probably the most common type of continuous dialysis is peritoneal dialysis. For purposes of ICU renal replacement therapy, peritoneal dialysis just isn't practical. 
The reason why peritoneal dialysis just isn't practical in an acute care or critical care setting is that it provides inefficient solute clearance in a patient who's critically ill and catabolic and increases the risk of peritonitis. It will cause potential problems with respiratory uh, function in a patient who may have uh, impaired uh, diaphragmatic movement because of ascites or, or because of uh, visceral edema. And certainly in a surgical patient, a lot of the larger number of these patients have had laparotomy, which makes uh, peritoneal dialysis totally impractical. Uh, or they're being treated for abdominal sepsis as well. So let's focus initially on some of the concepts involved in intermittent hemodialysis. The traditional method of intermittent hemodialysis is the patient is dialyzed anywhere from three to six times a week, and in each session it runs for about three to four hours. In intermittent hemodialysis, solutes are removed mainly by diffusion, and the volumes are removed by ultrafiltration. The magnitude of solute clearance, or how much solute we actually get off, is actually what nephrologists refer to as the dialysis dose. And the dialysis dose is dependent on the rate of blood flow that they put through the machine. And as they increase the blood flow through the machine, they're able to increase the dialysis dose. How a nephrologist makes decisions regarding the dialysis duration of the dose and the frequency are really based on the patient's metabolic situation, their volume status, and whether they have any uh, hemodynamic instability or hypotension. And there are some real significant advantages to intermittent hemodialysis, and the one is that it's rapid. You get rapid clearance of solutes, and you get rapid uh, removal of excess volume. This is great when you need to correct electrolyte disturbances rapidly, such as the case of hyperkalemia, or you've got a patient who has a drug overdose and, and, uh, or another kind of fatal or near-fatal intoxication where you need to correct the metabolic abnormality in a matter of hours. Another big advantage to intermittent hemodialysis is a decreased need for anticoagulation as compared to other types of renal replacement therapy. And the reason why you don't typically need anticoagulation is because of the more rapid blood flow rates. The main disadvantage of intermittent hemodialysis is, it's ra- is, is the same thing that it has for an advantage, and that it's rapid. The rapid uh, dialysis or ultrafiltration of these patients uh, can cause hypotension by the rapid removal of fluid uh, or uh, of a shifting of the electrolytes. Hypotension occurs in about 20 to 30% of um, hemodialysis treatments when you're using intermittent hemodialysis. There are some uh, techniques that a nephrologist can use to make uh, intermittent hemodialysis more tolerable and, and reduce the likelihood of hypotension, things called sodium modeling, and they can cool the dialysis. They can alter the dialysis calcium concentration, but approximately 10% of patients who have acute renal failure cannot be treated with intermittent dialysis because of the problems with instability. When you have a, a patient who is hypotensive on intermittent dialysis, that's clearly going to make the dialysis not as effective. The solutes aren't going to clear as well. You're not going to be able to correct the acid bases prob- acid base problems as uh, rapidly or perhaps as completely. And uh, the patient uh, may have persistent volume overload, and that is because you're, you really can't get the uh, volume of ultrafiltration uh, in that four-hour period that you need if a patient uh, is hypotensive. The other problem with uh, hypotension on intermittent hemodialysis is when we go back and we think about the different causes of renal failure. You know, it's, it's a great question I love to ask residents in the ICU, and, and almost always get the same response, is, is that what, are, what is the cause of acute renal failure in the surgical ICU? And, you know, you'll get a variety of answers, but the most common cause is multifactorial. You'll always see the nephrologist go back, and they're looking at the operative record. They're looking for periods of hypotension. Hypotension uh, in the face of nephrotoxins like antibiotics and and, uh, um, CT contrast material and so forth can aggravate or cause renal failure. And You've got an injured kidney, and you're running the patient uh, into a hypotensive episode while trying to do intermittent hemodialysis. 
it can certainly lead to, to renal ischemia, and that can certainly result in problems of uh, renal recovery. You want the patient's kidneys to eventually come back online, and that you certainly aren't going to help that by having persistent episodes of hypertension. You may have a patient in a surgical ICU where they may, could potentially uh, result in some intestinal ischemia, and you certainly would like to avoid that. Too rapid uh, removal of solutes can be create a problem uh, in a patient who's had a traumatic brain injury or p- perhaps a liver patient where cerebral edema might be an issue and you could potentially result in an increase in intracranial pressure. So those are considerations in, in that group of patients, a patient who um, has a brain trauma injury, a neurosurgical patient, or a liver patient who uh, might be encephalopathic. There was a reasonably controversial article that came out a couple of years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was published by Schiffel might be pronouncing that wrong, but it was New England Journal of Medicine 2002, and they did a prospective randomized uh, trial, and they looked at the frequency of intermittent hemodialysis. Typically, in most ICUs, a patient may get dialyzed two or three times a week, and what they the, the question that they asked was, what is the impact of daily dialysis? Would daily dialysis improve outcomes in renal failure patients? One of the things I found really interesting about the study is that it really wasn't truly daily dialysis. Um, um, they did dialysis six days a week. Apparently, daily dialysis includes every day except Sunday. Even God rested on the seventh day, and, and clearly a nephrologist uh, went to rest as well. So you have to say, well, intellectually, intellectual honesty, six days a week versus three days a week. And they did this in 160 patients, and they had acute renal failure caused by severe uh, acute tubular necrosis. Uh, and this was following a, a recent ischemic episode or a nephrotoxic injury, just like most patients uh, who are having acute renal failure in the intensive care unit. They included patients who were hemodynamically unstable uh, or patients who required some method of continuous renal replacement therapy. So we're looking at a group of patients who can tolerate some of the drawbacks of intermittent hemodialysis. And the endpoint they looked at was the survival 14 days after the last session of hemodialysis. Now keep in mind, we said that acute renal failure has a mortality rate in some serious 50%. So how many patients were alive two weeks after the last session of dialysis? Now using an intention to treat analysis, the mortality rate was 28% for the daily dialysis and 46% for the alternate day dialysis. So if we look at the conventional dialysis group, those people getting dialyzed roughly three times a week, their mortality rate was 46%, which is pretty pretty consistent with what's reported elsewhere in the literature and that we've been quoting of roughly 50%. Those who got treated six days a week, or virtually every day, the mortality rate was roughly half, or, or 28%. And the p-value on that was, was statistically significant at, at 0.01. So the conclusion that you take away from that is, well, if we do dialysis every day, the mortality rate's going to be cut in half. And the daily dialysis should have better uremic control, fewer hypertensive episodes uh, during the hemodialysis, and perhaps even a shorter time to recover of renal function, and, and certainly better survival. Now, this study created a lot of gnashing of teeth, and there's some significant operational issues about this because all of a sudden if you've got, you know, a cohort of patients in a hospital who have acute renal failure, now you're having to basically double your resources to get these patients dialyzed. Uh, that has significant cost implications of one, being able to have enough dialysis machines, and two, having enough nurses to actually do this. Upon peer review, there were some other um, um, issues that came up with this study. One was that they actually excluded the more severely ill patients who require the continuous renal replacement therapy. The other issue that was brought up was the delivered dose of dialysis was substantially lower than the prescribed dose in both groups. So what patients were dialyzed was typically 20 to 30% the 
prescribed dose in both groups. So um, the patients weren't being as vigorously dialyzed uh, as intended. When they looked at the uh, blood urea nitrogen of the BUN, it was actually lower in the daily hemodialysis group compared to the standard uh, every other day dialysis. It's roughly 60 in the daily dialysis group versus 104 in the every other day dialysis group. And this really indicated that patients who received the conventional um, uh, intermittent hemodialysis of, of three, to, three times uh, a week were under-dialyzed. So it's a commonly quoted study. Those are some of the drawbacks and those are some of the discussions that happened in the peer literature. Not saying it should be dismissed, but it does point out or does uh, raise the question is, you know, our kidneys work 24-7. Is there a benefit in dialyzing people more frequently? And it's a legitimate question, and that's that's where we get to the point of should we look at in a critically ill patient, what is the role of continuous renal replacement therapy? And that's what we're going to work into now. Now, you'll keep in mind that I said there were several types of uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. And this is when we get into all these initials that makes everybody confused. So let me go over this, and I'll, I'll repeat myself and, and try to be slow. We have SCUF, and SCUF is slow, continuous ultrafiltration. You remember what we said ultrafiltration was? It's the removal of water through a porous semipermeable membrane. So that's SCUF. Slow, continuous ultrafiltration. It's slow, it's continuous. Then we have the CAVH or the CVVH. Now, continuous is the C, AV is arterial venous, and H is hemofiltration. Now, the arterial and the venous, you don't typically see that anymore. It used to be that we'd put a catheter in an artery and a catheter in a vein. The blood would come out, the arterial catheter, go through the machine, and we'd get returned on the venous limb. There were significant complications of arterial catheters. You had to put uh, a catheter, obviously, in, a, in an artery, a catheter in the vein. Putting catheters in arteries can le lead to potential limb-threatening problems, uh, things like emboli, pseudoaneurysms, and so forth. So most people have gone away from arterial venous modes of continuous hemodialysis. Now we use typically venous venous modes, and the catheters we put in are basically large caliber dual lumen uh, uh, venous catheters, so we can put that in just, just in the vein, trying to attenuate some of the arterial complications. So we have continuous venous venous hemofiltration. Remember what hemofiltration is. Hemofiltration is the movement of solutes through convection using ultrafiltration. Going back to our tumbleweed, we're using an ultrafiltration technique. We're removing solutes by allowing them to get caught in that wind of the, the water going through this porous membranes, and we can move solutes uh, uh, out of the body um, using that technique. Next is we have continuous venous venous uh, hemodialysis. And once we start talking about use of hemodialysis, now we're talking about the use of dialysate. And dialysate really works by issues of diffusion. If we've got on one side of a membrane something with a very high potassium concentration, and that might be, say, the patient's blood, and on the other side of this semipermeable membrane, we have a solution with a very low potassium uh, concentration. That potassium is going to walk down the concentration gradient through the membrane into the dialysate. The dialysate's moving away, keeping that potassium concentration low, and that's going to keep pulling potassium out of the blood. That's the idea of dialysis. It's using diffusion, and here we're using it continuously through a venous-venous catheter, and that's where we get the CVVHD. There's one more called CVVHDF. I can't even spell that as a surgeon, but that's continuous venous-venous hemodiafiltration. 
And that's all I'm going to say about that. Like I said, the continuous therapies evolved from systems that relied on arterial access and blood pressure to maintain the flow through the extracorporeal circuit. Now we've gone mostly pump-driven systems, and therefore we really don't rely on the arterial circuits. In slow continuous ultrafiltration, you're using a low-volume ultrafiltration. They're going at rates between 100 to 300 milliliters per hour. And it really, remember, it's ultrafiltration. It's not really designed to move uh, significant uh, solutes through convection. No fluids are administered, either as a dialysate or replacement fluids, and the purpose here is the treatment of volume overload with or without renal failure. Indications include volume overload, patients that consist of heart failure, and are, say, refractory to diuretics. So it's a, it's a great thing to keep in mind. You don't need to use scuff solely for uh, patients uh, who are in renal failure. The next uh, is CVVH, continuous venous-venous hemofiltration. We're using convection here, and we're going to clear solutes, and solutes are carried along with the bulk flow of the fluid in what's called a hydraulic-induced ultrafiltration of blood. No dialysis used. And whenever we start talking about convection and this, quote, hydraulic-induced ultrafiltration of blood, again, think of it as a tumbleweed in the wind. Instead of a tumbleweed in the wind, it may be a um, potassium uh, uh, maybe potassium or maybe a uh, molecule of creatinine or blood urea nitrogen, but it's again, those are the tumbleweeds, and the wind here is the uh, filtered, ultrafiltered water. The rate at which ultrafiltration occurs is the major determinant in the convective clearance. Okay, so if we're ultrafiltrating more water, we're going to have more clearance of solutes. That would make sense. Because if we had a strong wind, we're going to be able to push more tumbleweed or push the tumbleweed more quickly. Uh, so going back to that silly analogy. It may be silly, but it seems to work, at least from my simple mind. The next is the continuous venous-venous hemodialysis. Now again, when we talk about hemodialysis, we're talking about diffusions. So what we do is we have the patient's blood running on one side of a membrane. It has a high potassium on one side. If we have the blood standing still, and we've got a, a blood potassium of 6 on one side, and a dialysis potassium of, say, three on the other side. Well, what's going to happen is it's going to come, it's, the six is going to go down into the dialysis and the dialysis concentration will what? It'll rise slowly and the blood calcium, the blood potassium will go down slowly and you're going to lose that, that gradient there. So to keep that hill reasonably steep, the blood's flowing through there, the dialysis moving at a fast rate to keep that potassium concentration or that uh, whatever the solute you want to clear concentration low. Dialysis works by diffusion. This dialysis solutions are running uh, in the opposite direction of the blood flow, and it's doing it at a rate of roughly one to two and a half liters per hour. Keep in mind, solute uh, clearance removes by diffusion. Unlike the intermittent hemodialysis, dialysis flow rate is slower than the blood flow rate, and this is allowing the small solutes to equilibrate completely between the blood and the dialysate. Ultrafiltration is used for volume control, uh, but can allow for some convective uh, clearance at higher rates. Now, we, in dialysis, we give replacement fluids. Uh, so as fluid's coming off, we're also giving fluid back, and we can do this on really um, in the circuit in really two areas. When you look at a dialysis machine, you're going to have a filter, and if you don't know what that is, go up to a dialysis nurse next time you see one in the ICU and ask them to point out the different parts of a dialysis machine. You've got the roller pumps, you've got the dialysis membrane, the column there, and they're replacing the fluid, and they can replace the fluid either before the membrane 
as before the patient's blood goes into the dialysis membrane or after the membrane. And there's advantages and disadvantages to either pre-filter fluid replacement or what we call post-filter. Post-filter replacement results in hemoconcentration of the filter, and this increases the risk of clotting of the filter. And uh, this especially occurs when what we call the filter fraction is greater than 30%. You really don't need to know what a filter fraction is, but clotting of a filter is, is, a, is a pain in the neck. Typically, if you've got somebody on continuous uh, renal replacement, it seems that the filter always clots like at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, because then what typically is somebody has to come in from the dialysis service and, and change out that filter. And that's, that's, that's a real headache for everybody involved. Pre-filter replacement dilutes the blood before going to the filter, and but the the drawback is is it well the, the plus is it's going to reduce the filter clotting. Um, one of the potential drawbacks is it dilutes the solutes before um, you get actually to the filter. Now, what are some of the you know, everything has a good, everything has a bad. Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of continual uh, renal replacement therapy? Since it's happening slower and the ultrafiltration is happening instead of over four hours but over 24 hours, it's tolerated much better in hemodynamically unstable patients. The gradual, continuous removal of, of the volume makes control of the volume status easier and allows administration of medications and nutrition with less concern for volume overload. Because it is a continuous uh, therapy, there is less fluctuation of the solutes and electrolytes over time and better control of the azotemia, better control of the electrolytes, and better control of the acid-base status. Since it is slower, we keep going back to the point that there's improved hemodynamic stability. This is going to result in fewer episodes of hypotension and fewer episodes where we're reducing renal blood flow. And if we're keeping the renal blood flow happy, hopefully we're going to have more rapid renal recovery. The other thing is because we're not seeing rapid shifts in the different concentrations of the various solutes, um, it's um, um, perhaps a better modality of uh, dialysis in a patient uh, who uh, has uh, or who's at risk for uh, cerebral hypertension, like our liver patient or our traumatic brain injured patient. Now, there are disadvantages of anything, and certainly disadvantages of continuous renal replacement therapy. These are typically the access, and I've already mentioned the clotting of the filter. To keep the filter from clotting, a lot of times we need to resort to anticoagulation. In order to make the continuous renal replacement ideal, it needs to be continuous, and, and to keep it from, and the one thing that will keep it from being continuous is that filter clotting. Things uh, that may clot the filter, one is, is, is sepsis. Um, the inflammatory response of sepsis results in platelet microthrombi and, and, and leukocyte platelet irrigation, and that can clot the dialyzer membrane. Um, unfractionated heparin has been the mainstay of anticoagulation to prevent the dialyzer filter from clotting, but there is a significant risk of life-threatening bleeding. It's estimated roughly 30%, uh, and also the risk of uh, developing heparin-associated antibodies. Uh, nephrologists do have at their available other types of anticoagulation, uh, such as citrate, low molecular weight heparin, and saline flushes, um, and um, they can also be used with uh, regional anticoagulation uh, with citrate is, is getting a little bit more acceptance as well. When we look at intermittent hemodialysis versus continuous renal uh, replacement head-to-head, there are a couple of prospective trials. They try to look at things like mortality and, and uh, recovery of renal function. And when you go back and you look through the trials, you know there are some that are very much pro-continuous renal replacement therapy. Um, but then when you go back and you look at the Apache scores and so forth, it looks like you're taking care of sicker patients. If you look at the evidence, and, and this is, I'm not a nephrologist, I'm a surgical intensivist, but it would be my my understanding of the literature that there's really insufficient data right now to draw you know a dogmatic conclusion that um, one is better the, uh, over the other because there's really not any uh, randomized controlled trials 
that are lacking in anything uh, in regards to biases and confounding variables. Now, this idea of SLED. Um, SLED is kind of a, a hybrid between continuous renal replacement therapy and intermittent dialysis. Intermittent dialysis, as we said, if we bring a if, if we bring a dialysis nurse or a machine to the patient's bedside for four hours uh, at a time, three days a week for a 12-hour period uh, over a seven-day week, uh, that's certainly uh, resource intense. When you have somebody on CVVHD, um, you typically have to increase your nursing acuity, which is is a significant expense. Perhaps making the patient, uh, as in our institution, a one-to-one. Is there a middle ground? And that middle ground actually is SLED. You'll keep in mind that SLED, S-L-E-D, stands for Sustained Low Efficiency Dialysis. And with sustained low-efficiency dialysis, also you also hear that called extended daily dialysis, there's slower uh, dialysis modalities for prolonged periods using conventional hemodialysis machines with modification of blood and dialysis flow. So what you do is you take a regular dialysis machine, instead of running it for four hours, you take that dialysis machine and you alter the blood and dialysis flow, and instead you're running it over six to 12 hours. So you get kind of the best of both worlds here. You get both the advantages of, of continuous renal replacement therapy and some of the advantages of intermittent hemodialysis. You get improved hemodynamic stability because it's a, uh, quite a bit more gradual in removal of the solutes and the volume. Um, uh, so you get more of that that you get with continuous and, and a little bit less of what you get with intermittent hemodialysis. You're not getting the uh, uh, hemodynamic instability. Uh, the advantage uh, of SLED is that you're able to provide the hot, same high solute clearances that you get with intermittent dialysis uh, and you're really removing the need for the expensive continuous machines um, and the, the continuous machines require uh, pretty costly uh, customized solutions and you have to have trained staff and like I said a very high nursing acuity. There was a study done by Kumar at the University of California Davis and they prospectively evaluated their experience of 25 patients who uh, underwent extended daily dialysis or uh, SLED and 17 patients who underwent continuous venovenous hemodialysis. They found no differences in the mean arterial pressure, no differences in the inotrope requirements. Uh, the mortality rate was reported to be higher in the extended dialysis group, 84 versus 65%, but the Apache scores were higher, however, in that extended daily dialysis group at the onset of treatment. They concluded that the extended dialysis was more cost-effective by removing the need for constant monitoring and dialysis equipment and reducing the nursing workload. So over the last 30 minutes, we've gone over a very brief and, and very superficial introduction to the various forms of renal replacement therapy. To quickly summarize, you have intermittent uh, dialysis, you have continuous renal replacement. Intermittent hemodialysis is our standard IHD dialysis machine. The continuous renal replacement, uh, the, we have the scuff or the slow continuous ultrafiltration, only the removal of water. We have the CVVH, which is continuous venous venous hemofiltration, which is moving solutes by convection using the ultrafiltration. There's no dialysate uh, going there. Then we have the CVVHD, where now we're running a dialysate. Uh, we're using more of the principles of diffusion. The advantages of continuous renal replacement therapy, it's more hemodynamically uh, stable and not associated with as much uh, electrolyte and fluid shifts as the intermittent and perhaps better tolerated people who may be at risk for cerebral edema.
And then we have the hybrid sled, which is sustained low-efficiency dialysis, and that's taking a regular dialysis machine and running it for 12 hours instead of four. The advantage of that is you really get less hemodynamic instability. You don't have to use the expensive machines. You don't have to use the expensive customized solutions, and you can keep a lower nursing acuity. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of data looking at one form being better than the other. The one study that's important to realize is that the uh, study in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at daily dialysis or six days, six times a week versus three times a week uh, did show a significant reduction in mortality, but there are some severe um, um, method problems with that paper. Not that it'd be ex excluded, but uh, the nephrology community has, has not totally embraced that concept. They perhaps may in the future with additional data. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. My name is Jeff Guy. That's the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. The website is www.burndoc.com. Thank you.